Oliver Twist, Chapter Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Chapter Two Treats of Oliver Twist's Growth, Education, and Bald. For the next eight or ten months, Oliver was a victim of a systematic cause of treachery and deception. He was brought up by hands. Hungry and destitute situation, the infant orphan was duly reported by the workhouse authorities to the parish authorities. The parish authorities inquired with dignity of the workhouse authorities whether there was no female then domiciled in the house who was in a situation to impart to Oliver Twist the consolation and nourishment of which he stood in need. The workhouse authorities replied with humility that there was not. Upon this, the parish authorities magnanimously and humanely resolved that Oliver should be farmed, or, in other words, that he should be dispatched to a branch workhouse some three miles off, where twenty or thirty other juvenile offenders against the poor laws rolled about the floor all day without the inconvenience of too much food or too much clothing, under the parental superintendence of an elderly female, received the culprits at and all this consideration of sevenpence halfpenny per small head per week. Sevenpence halfpenny is worth per week as a good round diet for a child. A great deal may be got for sevenpence halfpenny, quite enough to overload its stomach and make it uncomfortable. The elderly female was a woman of wisdom and experience. She knew what was good for children. And she had a very accurate perspective of what was good for herself. So she appropriated the greater part of the weekly stipend to her own use and consigned the rising parochial generation to even a shorter allowance than was originally provided for them. Thereby finding in the lowest steps a deeper still and providing herself a great experimental philosopher. Everybody knows the story of another experimental philosopher who had a great theory about a horse being able to live without eating and who demonstrated it so well that he had got his own horse down to a straw a day and would unquestionably have rendered him a very spirited and rampacious animal on nothing at all. If he had, he had not died four and twenty hours before he was to have his first comfortable bait of air. Unfortunately for the experimental philosophy, the female, to whom was taking care Oliver Twist was delivered over, a similar result usually attended the operation of her system, for at the very moment when the child had contrived to exist upon the smallest portion of the weakest possible food, it did pervasively happen in night, half tastes out of ten, either it sickened from want of cold, or fell into the fire from neglect, or it have smothered by accident. In any one of which cases the miserable little being was usually summoned into another world, and there gathered to the fathers it had never known in this. Occasionally, when there was some more than usually interesting inquest upon a perished child who had been overlooked in turning up a bedstead, or inadvertently scalded to death, when there happened to be a washing, though the later accident was very scarce, anything approaching to a washing being a rare occurrence at the farm, the jury would take it into their heads to ask troublesome questions, or the parishioners would rebelliously fix their signatures to a remonstrance. But these impertinences were speedily checked by the evidence of the surgeon, and the testimony of the beadle, the former of whom had already opened the body and found nothing inside which was very probable indeed, 
a later of whom invariably swore whatever the parish wanted, which was very self-devotional. Besides, the board made periodical pilgrimages to the farm and always hit the beetle the day before. They say they were going. The children were neat and clean to behold when they went. And what more would people have? It cannot be expected that this system of farming would produce any extraordinary or luxuriant crop. All of our twists ninth birthday found him a pale, thin child, somewhat diminutive in stature and decidedly small in circumference. But nature or inheritance had implanted a good sturdy spirit in Oliver's breast, and it had plenty of room to expand, thanks to the spare diet of the establishment. And perhaps to this circumstance may be attributed to his having any ninth birthday at all. Be this as it may, however, it was his ninth birthday, and he was keeping it in the coal cellar with a select party of two other young gentlemen, who, after participating with him in a sound thrashing, had been locked up for atrociously presuming to be hungry, when Mrs. Mann, the good lady of the house, was unexpectedly startled by the apparition of Mr. Bumble, the beetle, striving to undo the wicket of the garden gate. "'Goodness gracious! Is that you, Mr. Bumble, sir?' said Mrs. Mann, thrusting her head out of the window in well-affected ecstasies of joy. "'Susan, take Oliver and them two brats upstairs and wash them directly. My heart alive! Mr. Bumble, how glad I am to see you, surely!' Now, Mr. Bumble was a fat man, and the choleric, so instead of responding to this omen-hearted salutation in a kindred spirit, he gave little wicked and unremiss shake, and then bestowed upon it a kick which could have emanated from no leg but a beetle's. "'Law, only think!' said Mrs. Mann, whirling out, for the three boys had been removed by this time. "'Only think of that! That I should have forgotten that the gate was bowls on the inside on account of them, dear children! Walk in, sir! Walk in, pray, Mr. Bumble, do, sir!' Although well, this invitation was accompanied with a curtsy that might have softened the heart of a church warden, it would by no means verify the beetle. "'Do you think this respectable or proper conduct, Miss Mann?' inquired Mr. Bumble, grasping his cane. "'To keep the parish officers in waiting at your garden gate when they come here upon parochial business with the parochial orphans. Are you aware, Mr. Mann, that you are, as I may say, a parochial delegate and a stipendary?' I'm sure, Mr. Bumble, that I was only telling one or two of the other children as is so fond of you that it was you were coming, replied Mrs. Mann with great humility. Mr. Bumble had a great idea of his oratorical powers and his importance. He displayed the one and vindicated the other. He relaxed. Well, well, Mr. Mann, he replied in a calmer tone. It may be as you say, it may be. Lead the way in, Miss Mann, for I come on business and have something to say. Miss Mann issued the beetle into a small parlour with a brick floor, placed a seat for him, and officiously deposited his cocked hat and came on the table before him. Mr. Bumble wiped from his forehead the spurserispation which his walk had engendered, glanced complacently at the cocked hat and smiled. Yes, he smiled. Beetles are but men, and Mr. Bumble smiled. Now, but don't be offended by what I am going to say, observed Miss Mann, with a bit sweetness. You've had a long walk, you know, or I wouldn't have mentioned it. 
Now, will you take a little drop of something, Mr. Bumble? Not a drop, nor a drop, said Mr. Bumble, waving his right hand in a dignified but placid manner. I think you will, said Mrs. Mann, who had noticed the tone of refusal and the gesture that had accompanied it. Just a little drop, with a little cold water, and a large of sugar, Mr. Bumble coughed. <coughs> Not just a little drop said Mrs. Mann persuasively. What is it? inquired the beetle. Why, it's what I'm obliged to keep a little of in the house to put in the blessed infant's staff here when they ain't well, Mr. Bumble, required Mrs. Mann as she opened a corner of the cupboard and took out on a bottle and glass. It's gin. Oh, not to deceive you, Mr. B. It's gin. Do you give the children daffy, Mrs. Mann? inquired Bumble, following with his eyes an interesting process of mixing. Ah, oh, bless him, that I do, dear as it is, replied the nurse. I couldn't seem to suffer before my very eyes, you know, sir. No, said Mr. Bumble approvingly. No, you could not. You are her humane woman, Mrs. Mann. Here she set down the glass. I shall take an early opportunity of mentioning it to the board, Mrs. Mann. He drew it towards him. You feel as a mother, Mrs. Mann. He stirred the gin and water. I, I drink to your health with cheerfulness, Mrs. Mann. And he swallowed half of a bit. Now about business, said the beetle, taking out a leathern pocketbook. A child that was baptized all of a twist is nine year old today. Bless him, interposed Miss Mann, inflaming her left eye with a corner of her apron. And notwithstanding an offered reward of ten pounds, which was afterward increased to twenty pounds, notwithstanding the most superlative, and I may say, supernatural exertions on the part of the parish, said Bumble, we have never been able to discover who is his father, or what was his mother's settlement name or condition. Miss Mann raised her hands in astonishment, but added after a moment's reflection, how comes he to have any name at all, then? The beetle drew himself up with great pride and said, I invented it. You, Mr. Bumble? I, Mrs. Mann. We name all foundlings in alphabetical order. Alas, was an S. Swabble, I named him. This was a T. Twists, I named him. The next one comes will be Unwin, and the next Vilkins. I've got names ready-made to the end of the alphabet, and all the way through it again, when it comes to Z. Why, you're quite a literary character, sir, said Mrs. Mann. Well, well, said the beetle, evidently gratified with the compliment. Perhaps I may be, perhaps I may be, Mrs. Mann. He finished gin and water, and added, All of her being now too old to remain here, the board have determined to have him back into the house. I have come out myself to take him there, so let me see him at once. I'll fetch him directly, said Mrs. Mann, leaving the room for the purpose. Oliver, having had by this time as much of the outer coat as dirt which encrusted his face and hands, removed, as could be scrubbed off in one washing, was led into the room by his benevolent protectoress. Make a bow to the gentleman, Oliver said Mrs. Mann. Oliver made a bow, which was divided between the beetle on the chair, 
the cocked hat on the table. Will you go along with me, Oliver? said Mr. Bumble in a majestic voice. Oliver was about to say he would go along with anyone but with great readiness, when, glancing upward, he caught sight of Mrs. Mann, who had got behind the beadle's chair and was shaking a fist at him with a furious countenance. It appeared at once for the too often men impressed upon his body not to be deeply impressed upon his recollection. Will she go with me? inquired poor Oliver. No, she can't, inquired Mr. Bumble. But she'll come and see you sometimes. This was no great consolation to the child. Young as he was, however, he had sense enough to make a feint of feeling great regret at going away. It was no very difficult matter for the boy to call tears into his eyes. Hunger and recent ill-usage were great assistance if you want to cry. And Oliver cried very naturally indeed. Mrs. Mann gave him a thousand embraces, and when Oliver wanted a great deal more, a piece of bread and butter, lest he should be seen too hungry when he got to the workhouse. With a nice bread in his hand, and a little brown bearish cap on his head, Oliver was then led away by Mrs. Bumble from the wretched house, where one kind word or look had never lighted the gloom of his infant years. And yet he burst into an agony of childish grief at the cottage gate closed after him. Wretched as were the little companion's misery he was leaving behind. They were the only friends he had ever known, and a sense of his loneliness in the great wide world sank into the child's heart for the first time. Mr. Bumble walked on with long strides. Little Oliver, finally grasping his gold-laced cuff, trotted behind him, inquiring at the end of every quarter of a mile whether they were nearly there. To the interrogations, Mr. Bumble returned very brief and snappish replies, with a temporary blandness which chin and water awakened in some bosoms, had by this time evaporated, and he was once again a beetle. Oliver had not been within the walls of the workhouse a quarter of an hour, and had scarcely completed the demolition of his second slice of bread, when Mr. Bumble, who had handed him over to the care of an old woman, returned, and telling him it was a bald night, informed with the bald had said he was to appear before it forthwith. Not having a curly, clearly defined notion of what a live bald was, Oliver was rather astonished by its intelligence, and was not quite certain whether he ought to laugh or cry. He had no time to think about the matter, however, for Mr. Bumble gave him a tap on the head with his cane to wake him up, another on the back to make him lively, and bidding him to follow, conducted him into a large whitewashed room where ten or ten gentlemen were sitting round a table. At the top of the table, seated in an armchair rather higher than the rest, was a particularly fat gentleman with a very round red face. "'Bow to the board,' said Bumble. Oliver brushed away two or three tears that were lingering in his eyes, and seeing no board but the table, fortunately bowed to that. "'What's your name, boy?' said the gentleman in the high chair. Oliver was frightened at the sight of so many gentlemen, which made him tremble, and the beadle gave him another tap of the iron, which made him cry. These two causes made him answer in a very low and hesitating voice, whereupon a gentleman in a white waistcoat said he was a fool which was a capital way of raising his spirits, and putting him quite at disease. Boy, said the gentleman in the high chair, listen to me. You know, you're an orphan, I suppose. What's that, sir? inquired poor Oliver. The boy is a fool. I thought he was. And the gentleman in the white waistcoat. Hush, and the gentleman had spoken first. You know you've got no father or mother, 
and now you were brought up by the parish, don't you? Yes, sir, replied Oliver, weeping bitterly. What are you crying for? inquired the gentleman in the white waistcoat. And to be sure, it was very extraordinary. What could the boy be crying for? I hope you say your prayers every night, said another gentleman in a gruff voice, and pray for the people who feed you and take care of you, like a Christian. Yes, sir, stammered the boy. The gentleman who had spoke last was unconsciously right. It would have been a very like a Christian, and a marvellously good Christian, too, if Oliver had prayed for the people who fed and took care of him. But he hadn't, because nobody had taught him. Well, you've come here to be educated and taught a useful trade, said the red-faced gentleman in the high chair. So you'll begin to pick oakum tomorrow morning at six o'clock, added the surly one in the white waistcoat. And the combination of both those blessings and the one simple process of peaking oakum, Oliver bowed low in the direction of the beadle, and he was then hurried away into a large ward, where, on a rough part bed, he sought himself to sleep. What a noble iteration of the tender laws of England! They let the paupers go to sleep. Poor Oliver! He little thought, as he lay sleeping and happy on consciousness of all around him, that the board at that very day arrived at a decision which would exercise the most material influence over all his future fortunes. But they had. And this was it. The members of this board were very sage, deep, philosophical men, and when they came to turn their attention to the workhouse, they found out at once what ordinary folks would never have discovered— the poor people liked it. It was a regular place of public entertainment for the poorer classes. A tavern where there was nothing to pay. A public breakfast, dinner, tea and supper all the year round. A brick and mortar elysium, where it was all play and no work. Oh, said the board, looking very knowing. We are the fellows to set this to rights. We'll stop it all in no time. So they established the rule that all poor people should have the alternative, for they would compel nobody, not they, of being starved by a gradual process in the house, or by a quick one out of it. With this view, they contracted the waterworks to lay on an unlimited supply of water, and with a corn factor to supply periodically small quantities of oatmeal, and issued three mules of thin gruel a day, with an onion twice a week, and half a roll of Sundays. They made a great many other wise and humane regulations, having reference to the ladies, which it is not necessary to repeat. Kindly undertook to divorce poor married people in consequence of the great expense of a suit in doctor's commons, and instead of compelling a man to support his family as they had after all done, took his family away from him and made him a bachelor. There is no saying how many applicants for relief under those last two heads might have started up in all classes of society, if it had not been compatible with the workhouse. But the board were long-headed men, and prided for this difficulty. The relief was inseparable from the workhouse and the gruel, and that frightened people. For the first six months after Oliver Twist was removed, the system was in full operation, it was rather expensive at first, in consequence of an increase in the undertaker's bill. 
in this necessity of taking in the clothes of all the paupers which flutter loosely on their wasted shrunken forms after a week or, or twos of gruel but the number of workhouse inmates got thin as well as the paupers and the board was in ecstasies the room in which the boys were fed but there was a large stone hall with a copper at one end out of which the master dressed in an apron for the purpose and assisted by one or two women laden on the gruel at meal-times of this test of composition each boy had one porridger and no more except on occasions of great public rejoicing when he had two ounces and a quarter of bread besides the balls never wanted washing the boys polished them with their spoons till they shone again when they performed this operation which never took very long their spoons being nearly as large as the bowls they would sit staring at the copper with such eager eyes as if they could have devoured the very bricks of which it was composed employing themselves meanwhile in sucking their fingers most assiduously with the view of catching up any splashes of gruel that might have been cast thereupon boys of generally excellent appetites oliver twist and his companions suffered the tortures of slow starvation for three months alas they got so voracious and wild with hunger that one boy was tall for his age and hadn't been used to that sort of thing for his mother had kept a small cook-shop hinted darkly to his companions unless he had another basin of gruel per diem he was afraid that he might some night happen to eat the boy who slept next to him happened to be a weakly youth of tender age he had a wild hungry eye and they had implicitly believed him a council was held lots were cast who should walk up to the master after supper that evening and ask for more and it fell to oliver twist the evening arrived the boys took up their places the master in his cook's uniform stationed himself at the copper his pauper assistants ranged themselves behind them the gruel was served out and a long race was said over the short commons gruel disappeared the boys whispered to each other and winked at oliver while his next neighbours nudged him child as he was he was desperate with hunger and reckless with misery he rose from the table and advanced to the master basin and spoon in hand and said somewhat alarming at his own tenacity please sir i want some more master was a fat healthy man but he turned very pale he gazed in stupefied astonishment on the small rebel for some seconds and then clung for support to the copper the assistants were paralyzed with wonder the boys with fear What? the master at length in a faint voice please sir replied oliver i want some more and the master aimed a blow at oliver's head with the ladle pinioned him in his arm and shrieked aloud with a beetle the board was sitting in solemn conclave when mr bumble rushed into the room in great excitement and addressed the gentleman in the high chair said mr lemkins i beg your pardon sir oliver twist is asked for more there was a general start. Horror was depicted on every countenance. For more, said Mr. Limkins. Compose yourself, Bumble, and answer me distinctly. Do I understand he has asked for more after he has eaten on the supper allotted by the dietary? He did, sir, replied Bumble. The boy will be hung, said the gentleman in the waistcoat. I know the boys will be hung.
Nobody controverted the prophetic gentleman's opinion. An animated discussion took place. Ottawa was ordered into instant confinement, and a bill was next morning pasted on the side of the gate, offering a reward of five pounds to anyone who would take Oliver Twist off the hands of the parish. In other words, five pounds and Oliver Twist were offered to any man or woman who wanted an apprentice to any trade, business, or calling. I never was more convinced of anything in my life, said the gentleman in the white waistcoat, as he knocked at the gate and read the bill the next morning. I never was convinced of anything in my life than I am that the bad boy will come to be hung. As I purpose to show in the sequel whether the white waistcoated gentleman was right or not, I should perhaps mar the interest of this narrative supposing it to possess any at all. If I venture to jint just yet whether the life of Oliver Twist had this violent termination, or no. End of chapter 2